Um, Please open your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 6. Whenever I'm at a pastor's gathering, um, one of the questions I ask others is, what are you preaching about on the weekend? That's a simple question, but it can be a very uplifting one for me. Um, I get to hear how others are going about the business of feeding uh, the sheep that God has allotted to their care and usually provides a chance to discuss those matters together and learn from others who've been doing it longer than I have and uh, embolden others who've been doing it less uh, than I have. And the answer to that question tells a lot about uh, a preacher. It's certainly been encouraging to to ask that question uh, at FICA conferences. And I'm looking forward to heading up to Queensland uh, for this year's conference tomorrow. Unfortunately, not all places are like that. Um, I received one response several years ago, and it has just been ingrained in my memory. The pastor said, well, the lectionary has the beheading of John the Baptist, but I'm just going to do something else, because where's the good news in that? Now, just let that sink in for a moment. Where's the good news in that? Now, that's not a question wondering how to preach the gospel through that text, But it's a question asking, how do I make my church feel good about themselves with a passage like that? But Jesus himself makes clear that since the world hates him, it's going to hate those who follow him. So how is the church to be prepared for the inevitability of persecution if those tasked with the responsibility of feeding them are withholding that truth? In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 to 27, the Apostle Paul declared to the Ephesian elders, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul advocates the whole message, not just parts. Every word of scripture, not merely certain verses. Not just the bits we think people will like or will make people like us for saying it, but every bit, including the verses that cause us to stop and count the cost. Paul says to believers in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, it's not teaching salvation equals faith plus suffering, but rather teaching that a willingness to suffer for the name of Christ is evidence that saving grace is at work in a person's heart. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus declared John the Baptist to be the greatest prophet. And the reason he said this was being that unlike uh, all the other prophets who came before John, John was tasked with directly preparing the way for the Lord's arrival no other old testament prophet laid eyes upon the messiah but john did and john baptized him and he literally pointed out jesus to his followers with some of these men becoming apostles of the lord but john faced what other prophets faced before him it was a tough gig being a prophet they faced terrible persecution john was not the first to suffer and he was not the first to die But like the prophets before him, his death proved his faithfulness. And while he was unfairly imprisoned and unjustly executed, the moment his eyes closed in this life, they opened to see the glory of Christ. 
John understood that the sufferings in this present life are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed. When we read about John's death in Mark chapter 6, we learn that it was something that had actually happened earlier. The reason it comes to light at this point in the gospel is that when Jesus sent his 12 apostles on their solo mission, they were so successful that the name of Jesus had reached the ears of the ruler of Galilee, King Herod. Herod mistakenly thought that Jesus was John raised from the dead. And it's this thought of Herod's that gives Mark opportunity to recall what had happened to John. The recollection of John's death at this point also helps to temper any false notions of what constitutes success in ministry. I mean, at the start of Mark chapter 6, Jesus had just been rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. But do we ask, was that a ministry failure? And then we read of John's death, but was that a ministry failure? If we view these events through human eyes, we might be inclined to think so. But the reality is, as Christians, we are called to faithfulness. That is the true measure of success. Have we been faithful to what God has called us, even in the face of opposition? Faithfulness is what matters, and the results we are to leave up to God. Moreover, John's death serves to anticipate what would eventually happen to Jesus. Jesus had referred to himself as a prophet in Mark 6 verse 4 and like the prophets before him he too would experience persecution. Now Jesus' death on the cross was mocked as a failure wasn't it? Most of his friends abandoned him and the apostles went into hiding but the cross was not a failure. We call it Good Friday because it was followed by Easter Sunday and it was through the cross and the resurrection that victory was gained over sin and death. As Peter declared to the believers in his first letter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's 1 Peter 2 verse 24. As well as all this, we should not miss the direct rebuttal in this passage against the way that we treat Christ and his people. The behaviour of Herod and his wife should cause us to think hard about our own thoughts and words and actions. Their sin, their pride, their hate led to the death of a righteous and holy man. It gives us pause to consider how we're living our lives at this moment. To ask the Spirit to shine a light upon us and, and to root out any way within us that stands against the Lord and His purposes. Because our sins never affect simply ourselves, do they? So there's much to be challenged by in this passage, but there's much to be encouraged with. There is much good news. But only when we avoid classifying good by a superficial pleasure. Only if we allow the Lord to direct us to what is his good for us. Well, the title for today's message is The Execution of the Lord's Prophet. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. The Baptist's designation, his detention, and his demise. So, point one, the Baptist's designation mentioned uh, before that in Mark 6 verse 13 we read about the success of the apostles 
mission. We read, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then we come to verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. The knowledge of Jesus was fast spreading throughout the land, not only by his own hand, but also through the work of the apostles, his delegates, who were sent on mission to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to perform miracles to validate the truth of their message. And word was spreading and it had reached the ears of the ruler of the region, King Herod. There's many Herods that we read of in the New Testament, but this is the same Herod whom would eventually meet the Lord face to face in a few years at the time of Christ's trial. This is the same Herod whom Christ referred to as that fox in Luke 13. It was the followers of this same Herod, the Herodians, whom the Pharisees had earlier joined forces with to plot the demise of Christ after he healed the man with the withered hand in the Capernaum synagogue, which we read about in Mark chapter 3. This Herod was called Antipas, Herod Antipas. Now his name is not found in scripture, but it's found in the works of the first century Jewish historian Josephus. Antipas, born in 20 BC, was one of the many children of Herod the Great. It was Herod the Great who orchestrated the deaths of the male children in Bethlehem to try and kill the true king of Israel, our Lord Jesus. Well, after Herod the Great's death in 4 BC, the land of Israel was divided up between his four sons. Or between four of his sons. Just turn with me for a moment to Luke chapter 3. We want to try and get our, our bearings on what was going on at the time. In Luke chapter 3, we read this in verses 1 to 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that's the Roman emperor at the time, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod, that's Herod Antipas, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, Pontius Pilate uh, looked after the region of what used to belong to another of Herod's sons, Archelaus. Archelaus was a cruel man. He'd been given rule over Judea and Samaria. Because of this, Joseph was warned in a dream to take Mary and baby Jesus to live in Nazareth in Galilee after they returned from Egypt. Now, Archelaus was eventually banished by Rome in 6 AD, and the Romans placed procurators over that region, hence the presence of Pontius Pilate in the time of John's and Jesus' ministries. Now, the title of king was self-imposed by Herod Antipas because he was only a tetrarch. Now, a tetrarch was a, a ruler of a fourth of the land, and he ruled only under the authority of Rome. Mark, however, doesn't make an error in referring to him as such because in Matthew's account, he speaks of Herod as a tetrarch and a king, with everyone being fully aware that his kingship 
or this kingship was in Herod's eyes only. So the name of Jesus had reached the ears of Herod. But with that came several possible explanations. In the minds of some, the unjust death of the righteous John may have led to God raising him from the dead and giving him miraculous powers. In the minds of others, Jesus' ministry might have been the arrival of the prophet Elijah in fulfilment of the prophecies in the book of Malachi. So we read in Malachi 4 verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But of course, we know that John the Baptist was the fulfilment of that particular prophecy. Jesus himself made that clear in Mark 9. There were others still who believed that Jesus was a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And those who made this claim did not understand the true nature of Christ. Uh, For he's not simply like the prophets of old, but he is the prophet of whom Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18. The great prophet. And even more significantly, he is the son of God. As Mark has been at pains to make clear throughout his gospel. But with all this speculation, what did Herod think? Well, in Luke 9, 9, we read, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. But Mark and Matthew reveal that Herod had more specific thoughts about Jesus' identity. So Mark 6, verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Matthew 14, verse 2, we read, He said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So Herod believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. This was the Baptist's designation from Herod. His own guilt over what he had done to John worked as a stumbling block to recognise the true nature of Jesus. It's amazing how one sin always leads to another. Instead of repenting of his actions, Herod continued to pile them on. Instead of repenting over what he did to John, he compounds his problem by allowing the clear testimony of Christ and his work to be put aside as something else. Yet Herod still does recognise that the work Jesus was doing at that time was from God. There was no doubting the miraculous nature of what was happening. But it does not lead the man to drop to his knees in the humble submission to God. Perhaps you've been there yourself in hard-heartedness towards Christ. But you've since experienced the touch of God's grace to soften your heart toward him. Praise God for that. For without his grace, we'd all be lost. And accounts like this one of Herod serve as means of stirring thankfulness in our hearts to God once more. Thankfulness that he saved a wretch like me. But perhaps you're there now. Perhaps something in your heart is acting as a stumbling block in your submission to Christ. If that's the case, please look upon the life of Herod and see where that kind of thing ends up. Don't waste another moment seeking to cover up your guilt before God. 
Call out to him. Call out for his mercy. Psalm 147, verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Call out to the Lord. He is faithful and he is merciful. Well, having told us what Herod thought when he heard about Jesus, Mark goes on to recall what Herod had done to John the Baptist. And so point two, the Baptist's detention. And we're back in Mark 6. Verse 17 says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now why did Herod arrest John concerning this matter? Well, that's answered in verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod had married Herodias. John rebuked him for it, and so Herod arrested him. That's the short version. But it bears fleshing out for a few moments. Let me say to begin with that this Philip is not the same as Philip the Tetrarch, who's mentioned in Luke 3. This was actually another son of Herod the Great, who was also called Philip. And he was commonly known as Herod Philip I, or even just Herod II. And if you look up Herod the Great's family tree, you can see it gets quite complicated. So don't be stressed if you're confused by what I've just said, because Herod the Great had multiple wives, many sons, and incest was pretty much par for the course. Now, back in Mark 1 is where we first learn that John had been imprisoned. This was an important time stamp because it was at that moment that Jesus began his public ministry in Galilee. So we read in Mark 1 verse 14, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark's saved the explanation of this arrest until now in chapter 6. So why was John so indignant about Herod's marriage? Well, there are several reasons, and I'm glad you're all sitting down. For starters, Herod Antipas was already married at that time to a woman named Phasaelus. She was the daughter of King Aretas IV, who was a ruler of Nabataean Arabia, which was located uh, on the southern and eastern borders of Israel. When she found out that Herod was planning on divorcing her, uh, she escaped to her father, who started a war against Herod, which Herod was losing until he received help from Rome. Then, Herod Antipas was actually the uncle of Herodias, because she was the daughter of Aristobulus, who was Herod's brother. And on top of this, Herod Antipas had convinced Herodias to divorce her husband and marry him instead, leaving one uncle husband for another. Now, in Deuteronomy 25, there was provision under the old covenant for what's known as a Leverite marriage. It meant that if a man died without giving his wife a son, then it was the responsibility of his brother to fulfill that duty for the widow so that the dead man's name and his allotment in the land would be retained. Of course, that's not what Herod was doing. Unlawful divorce, incest. We can see why John, the preacher of repentance, 
was not at all impressed with Herod's actions. Now, John was a man of courage and boldness and conviction, and he proclaimed the truth no matter what the cost he would personally be forced to pay. In Luke 3, after pronouncing the dual promise that the coming Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit all who repented and baptize with fire all those who refused, we read in verses 18 to 20, So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John had not been caught whispering by the water cooler about his dislike of Herod's actions. John had proclaimed it to his face. And moreover, it seems clear that John had not limited himself to this one matter, but had called Herod to repent for all the evil things he was doing. Takes courage to speak the truth. And each believer should pray that God might grant us the ability to do so in whatever situation we are placed. Now, of course, the truth should be spoken in love. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. We must be ever vigilant to ensure our desire for truth is for the good of others. We want people to hear the truth so that they will repent and turn to Christ and experience the forgiveness and love of God and the joy that's found when reconciled to him. But there's the opposite difficulty of ensuring we we speak the truth at all. All too commonly we find in churches today a call for love without truth. And that too is unbiblical. As Paul says in his great passage on love, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6. The fact that Herod thought John to be righteous and holy showed that he did not get the impression that John hated him. On the contrary, he knew he cared enough to point out his sin. The problem with Herod was he did not care enough about his own sin. Yet John serves as an incredible example for us to follow. Now, in Matthew's recalling of John's arrest, we learn that Herod wanted to put John to death himself, but he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So, despite his dislike of John, Herod kept him alive. That was also despite the best efforts of Herodias, his wife, who Mark tells us had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. John's got laser sights on him from all directions. Yet Mark's record shows us that even more was going on in the mind of Herod. We're told that Herod refused to be swayed by Herodias' demands. Why? Verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. The reality is that Herod knew John was right. He knew John was a man of God. And so while he wanted to kill him, he chose not to. Yes, he made that choice because he was afraid of the uprising that might follow, but there was a deeper reason. Herod was afraid of John. He revered him as a man that had been sent by God. And yet, even this fear does not lead to repentance. Look at the rest of verse 20, where Mark tells us that when Herod heard John speak while he was in prison, Herod was greatly perplexed 
And yet he hurt him gladly. Herod's heart was like a combination of all the soils in Jesus' parable. All the soils except the good soil, that is. There was hardness, there was fickleness, there was fear. It was a real mess. And once again, we see on display the sinfulness of sin. And we're brought into the stark realisation that unless the Spirit of God first works to regenerate a sinner's heart, they will not respond to the gospel in faith. They may respond to it in other ways, but not in faith. Herod had this man in prison. The man whom the Lord described as the greatest prophet, and yet John's words simply provoked within Herod a mixture of confusion and amusement. If Herod had his way, John would have spent his days detained in prison, his own personal prophet on a string. But his wife Herodias was a cunning woman and was always on the lookout for a chance to destroy John. It's a terrible thing to witness an attitude like that. Someone so embittered that every moment is spent plotting the downfall of another. But it does happen. Yet as Christians, if we encounter this, we continue to trust in the sovereignty of God. That for reasons beyond our understanding, God has allowed this person a voice in our lives. We may receive vindication in this life, or we may not. But we trust in the promise of Scripture, which states, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So even the most tragic and trying events are under the providential guidance of God including the moment outlined for us in verses 21 to 29. And we'll address this under point three, the Baptist's demise. So verse 21, but an opportunity came. Herodias had been keeping her eyes peeled for a single chance at ending the life of the one who publicly rebuked her. And at last it came. It was the moment of Herod's birthday when he gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, Roman birthday parties were generally very debauched affairs with excesses of food and wine and sexual immorality. There were no women officially invited to this soiree. The men who attended were the elites of the land. And a combination of these factors help us understand how the demise of the Baptist could have eventuated that day. An environment of overindulgence of all the senses, in an atmosphere of arrogance and boastfulness, as Herod entertains the who's who of Galilee, Herod unwittingly provides an opportunity for Herodias to finally get to John. Verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. Now it's not clear from the text whether Herodias had anything to do with her daughter coming in to dance before the men. On that we can only speculate. Maybe she did. On the other hand, maybe it wasn't planned, but through Herod's folly he presented them with that chance. We learn from Josephus' accounts that Herodias' daughter was named Salome. Now, in verse 22, Mark refers to her as a girl, and the same noun used to describe uh, Jairus' daughter is found in chapter 5, whom we know was only 12 years old. 
And uh, this fact has led some to suggest that we shouldn't view any sexual connotation to her dance, that, that Herod was simply enamoured by a little girl's performance. But sexual modesty was not something really associated with the Herod dynasty. And the incestual line continued with Salome as well. Uh, she ended up marrying Antipas's brother, Philip the Tetrarch, uh, who was technically her grand-uncle. And uh, after Philip's death, Salome married her own mother's brother as well. So given all that we've just laid out surrounding the nature of this birthday party, it would seem far more likely that the girl's dance was quite provocative. And it led Herod to make a truly stunning offer to the young girl. Continuing in verse 23. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. This is truly presumptuous on Herod's behalf because he did not have the authority to do that. He, in fact, answered to Rome. Indeed, in 39 AD, Herod's nephew, Agrippa, uh, conspired against him and as a result, Emperor Caligula gave Antipas's money and territories over to Agrippa and sent Antipas into exile where he later died. But at that moment in the party, Herod was evidently not thinking clearly. And someone is there to quickly pounce on his mistake. Salome senses the extraordinary nature of Herod's offer and she doesn't want to waste it. So she goes straight out to her mother saying, for what should I ask? You can imagine Herodias's heart pounding, the eyes bulging, mouth salivating at what her daughter has just told her. And there is no hesitation. There's only one thing that has occupied the focus of her mind for so long and the sentence races out of her lips. Ask for the head of John the Baptist. The connection of John the Baptist to the prophet Elijah is made even tighter here. Israel's king during Elijah's ministry was the evil Ahab and his pagan wife Jezebel. Now her name becomes a synonym for evil. In the book of Revelation, Jesus tells the church in Thyatira, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Well, Herodias is the Baptist's Jezebel. And her husband's waywardness has just provided her victory over her enemy. So, with her mother's answer firm in hand, Salome quickly returns. Mark says, immediately with haste. There was not a moment to lose in case the king suddenly realized the stupidity of what he had just uttered. But before he does, Salome presents her request. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Only now does it sink in for Herod what he has just done. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry. But this is an example of worldly grief, not godly grief 2 corinthians 7 verse 10 the apostle paul declares for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death well how true is that in this moment mark tells us that for herod it was because of his oaths and his guests he did not want to break his word to her
Herod's grief does not cause him to recant and do the right thing. He's more concerned about maintaining his own reputation than the fact that an innocent man will pay the price for his rash words. It'll be sad for Herod that John will have to die, but so be it if it means Herod maintains his authority. See, Herod could not allow himself to be seen as someone who reneges on his word, and he certainly doesn't want to uh, show any sign of weakness in the presence of his elite guests. No, John must die, and so the order is given. Verse 27, And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. Josephus who tells us that the place of John's detention and execution was Herod's fortress at Machaerus. This was located south of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Dead Sea in the region of what's known as Perea, which was also part of Antipas's rule. Now some have raised concerns about the legitimacy of the biblical account, suggesting that Mark got it wrong. It'd be far more likely for Herod's birthday party to have been held at his fortress in Tiberia in Galilee, and because of this, the immediacy of the events would make no sense. However, in recent years, a tremendous amount of work has been done at the site of Machaerus. Just at the start of this year, the Biblical Archaeological Society published several articles showing that the archaeology matches the Bible. Again, Machaerus was not simply a prison, but also held a royal courtyard where the party would have easily taken place. So from the courtyard to the prison, word is sent and the deed is done. But proof is sought. In verse 28 we learn that the executioner placed John's head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. Mark records no more about what happened to John's head. However, it was not uncommon in the ancient world to further disfigure the head of an opponent in order to get that last little bit of vengeance out of the system. Given the pent-up rage that's been building in Herodias' heart this whole time, that would not seem out of place should we have been told that that was in fact what happened. The passage does not... Sorry, the passage does end, however, with a display of loyalty from John's followers. Verse 29... When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And Matthew informs us that it was John's disciples who then went and passed on the information to Jesus. Again, we might look upon the end of John's life as a failure. And yet he had been faithful to God in all that he had done. And that is all that's asked of each believer. In Christ's letter to the church of Smyrna, We're told in Revelation 2, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The fact is that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, and so we are to be about the business of storing up treasures in heaven. What counts as true treasures vastly different from what is chased after in this world. For readers of Mark's Gospel, the death of John is an ominous warning of what's about to befall the greater prophet and Jesus Christ. But 
as we know, it would be through Jesus' death that the redemption price would be paid for all he came to save. When John was in prison, he sent men to Jesus to question whether he was truly the awaited Messiah. And Jesus pointed John's men to the signs that accompanied his ministry. John went to his death with the knowledge that the Messiah had come. And as believers, we too can have confidence to follow Christ wherever he calls us because we know that our security, sorry, our eternal security is found in him. But we also do so with the knowledge that by God's grace we've been taken out of this world to be sent back into this world. And yet now that we belong to the kingdom of light, that means we are in opposition to the kingdom of darkness and we should expect persecution to come. When we read through the scripture, we're left in no doubt that this is the case. The Apostle Peter says a great deal to believers who are about to undergo persecution for their faith. And his words shed great light on what we've just read today. And indeed give us great instruction and hope for us today as the Western world moves increasingly out of a Christendom mindset where Christianity is accepted and valued. And back towards, well, what is in essence normality that is against christianity so let me close with these words from 1 peter 4 verses 12 to 19 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We see that in the life of John the Baptist. May God enable that in the lives of his people today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for the whole counsel that you have revealed to us, every word of scripture, every word being useful for training us, instructing us, growing us, conforming us to Christ. We thank you for the passage we've read today, for the the stark reminder of of the opposition that will come by having been saved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. Father, we thank you for the witness of John the Baptist, for his courage, his boldness, his conviction. Father, we thank you for his desire that he was not out to condemn people for condemnation's sake, but to call people to repentance, knowing that they already are under the condemnation of God with the hope 
that they might turn to Christ. Thank you, Father, for bringing us out of condemnation through faith in our Lord. Father, help us to be bold as we go from here today to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, his person and his work, and the necessity of faith in him for salvation. Help us to speak the truth in love. Help us to do both of those things, to be loving with a deep desire to see people saved, but to be loving in a deep desire to present the truth clearly. May you guide each one of us individually. May you enable us as a church collectively that the gospel might sound forth from among us and lives would be saved by your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.